what will you do with Jesus? When you're confronted with this historical figure, what do you do in response to him? Really, that comes down to who Jesus really is. And there are many ideas about who Jesus is that people have. Um, Many people today think that Jesus is a good person or was a good person who taught people about love and basically how to be a good person too. So on Friday, I had the privilege of going to my niece's high school musical, Godspell. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. Just so happens that that musical is based largely on the gospel that we're in, Matthew. So you can understand, I was very, very interested in how they were going to portray Jesus and also how they were going to present this gospel. And I'm not going to lie to you, they messed up a lot in that musical. But what's surprising is how much they did actually take from the gospel of Matthew, almost directly. And that could give you the impression that they were giving you the Bible's perspective on who Jesus is. And they did, after all, mention hell and eternal damnation. So in many ways, though, it wasn't what was included in this musical that was disturbing. It's what they left out. <clears throat> there was no gospel in God's spell. There's nothing about why Jesus needed to die. Really, in the story, it's, it's just kind of unfortunate. Unfortunate that he ends up dying. There's a cry at the beginning. God save the people. But... The very next thing in the story, they're saying, you know, that you need to, uh, need to pay attention to your lessons. You know, pay attention to your lessons well on account of this, this question, or this, this quiz at your ascension. Not to mention the threat of hell. Do good, because you're going to be quizzed on it later. Pay attention to your lessons. So Jesus, the Jesus of God's spell, is a good teacher who can help people build a beautiful city. That's one of the songs as well. The musical ended the way I thought it was going to end, with Jesus' death. That's where it ends. And the followers end up having the last word, which according, at least the way that the high school version here did it, they're, again, singing about this beautiful city that now they can build together. So there's no resurrection. And that's been a, a source of controversy Many people have been upset about the fact that this story didn't have a resurrection. Though at the curtain call, Jesus does come out and he's wearing white. It's kind of a choose-your-own-interpretation moment, I think. Actually, that's what the director says. This is something that the director addressed, or the writer, rather, of the the musical. He addressed because so many people had problems with it. So he, he has a note to the directors, and it says, Over the years... There's been comment from some about the lack of an apparent resurrection in the show. Some choose to view the curtain call in which Jesus appears as symbolic of the resurrection. Others point to the moment when the cast raised Jesus above their heads. Either view is valid. Both miss the point. God's spell is about the formation of a community which carries on Jesus' teachings after he is gone. In other words, it is the effect Jesus has on the others, which is the story of the show. Not whether or not he himself is resurrected. Therefore, it is very important at the end of the show that it be clear that the others have come through the violence and pain of the crucifixion sequence and leave with a joyful determination to carry on the ideas and feelings they have learned during the course of the show. 
So Jesus is a great moral teacher whose ideas we can carry on. That's kind of the essence of, of the show. The problem is Jesus wasn't crucified for being a great moral teacher. That wasn't what Jesus claimed. He claimed greater authority than simply a teacher. It wasn't just somebody whose advice you could, maybe should take. He, he claimed to be the Messiah, not the, the Messiah that they were thinking he was going to be. The Messiah Jesus claimed to be, claimed an equality with God. Something that the leaders rightly would have understood to be blasphemy if he wasn't telling the truth. So when it comes to Godspell and these other versions of, of Jesus as a good teacher, I think C.S. Lewis which I mentioned before, he gives the best response to this when he said, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to so we're here in matthew 27 verses 11 through 31 that's where we'll be this morning and jesus is on trial in this passage this morning and the question we have to consider is what will you do with jesus so we're going to look at four different responses in this trial and then we're going to consider our own, our own response at the end. So we're going to look at Jesus' response to the trial. The people of Israel's response, Pilate's response, the soldier's response, and then again our own response. So first we're going to start, we're going to start with Jesus. We're going to focus in on him and how he responds. How does he respond to this trial? Jesus stands firm. That's what you see. In verse 11, it begins, Now Jesus stood before the governor. We were introduced to Pilate the governor in the second verse of this chapter. And I mentioned that he's a prefect. That's a specific role. He's been placed here specifically because this is an unruly part of the Roman Empire. And so on the one hand, it would not be hard for a prefect, this military officer who's been put around rebellious people, to think that there's an insurrection that's possibly happening here. In fact, what we're going to see is one had recently happened. On top of that, you remember what the Jewish leaders had originally said when they were going to arrest Jesus? They were avoiding this time. They didn't want to do it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because this was a time then we, when the people were remembering that God had rescued them from their Egyptian slavery. So this was a time where it'd be really easy to rile up the crowd over their subjugation to Rome. So Leon Morris, I think he explains really well this difficult situation that Pilate was in when these Jewish leaders bring Jesus to him. He says that Pilate was answerable to the emperor Tiberius, a man who would show no mercy to a governor who condoned 
treasonable activities. It was dangerous for him to take a soft line where treason was alleged. But on the other hand, Tiberius could take a strong line against a governor who treated his subjects badly. Thus, when Jesus came before him, he had to be on his guard against doing anything too harsh or too lenient. And most commentators pointed out that this is how Pilate lost his job. He was ousted because he was too harsh with the Samaritans. So this was a powder keg. Pilate knows he's sitting on it, and he knows that whatever he decides about Jesus, it could all blow up in his face. So we're not told the charges here directly in Matthew, but you can piece it together based on Pilate's question. In verse 11, he says, the governor asked, are you the king of the Jews? So instead of stressing blasphemy, their religious accusation, they have now put this in a political way. They're suggesting Jesus is making a claim to be a king, simply a king. Now, Pilate is in the role that had replaced the Herodian kings. So in claiming that he's a king, the king of the Jews, that's, a, that's, a, that's calling into question his authority, and more importantly, the authority of Rome. So Jesus responds, and it, some people think, Jesus is being unclear. Some people think he's equivocating here. He says, it's translated, you have said so. That's nearly identical to what he told the Jewish leaders back in Matthew 26 and verse 64. The only difference is the tense of the verb. Probably because of the way and who he's talking to. So, we understood what Jesus said back in chapter 26. He was saying, that's how you would put it. It was a way for Jesus to give a qualified yes. He was saying, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah the way that you guys are thinking about it. And so what he was telling Pilate here, he's saying, yes, I am the king of the Jews, but it's, it's not like you might think. John tells us that they had actually a, a longer conversation about this. But just understand what Jesus has done in answering this question the way that he's, he's answered it. He's talking to a pagan ruler. Now, if he didn't think that the Jewish leaders steeped in the Old Testament would understand what kind of a king he is. Think about the risk he took in telling the truth to Pilate when Pilate wasn't going to understand this. Jesus was telling Pilate something that he could get killed for. And he doesn't, he doesn't hesitate. Peter, who's under a much less serious, much less threatening situation, when he's asked about the truth, he denies it. Jesus stood firm. He said the truth. He wasn't faithless. He told the truth. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 6.13. He says, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, Jesus made the good confession. So he practiced what he preached. He confessed the truth about who he was before men. That's what he tells his disciples to do. Even before people who could kill him over that truth. So he didn't cower. He didn't deny it. He made the good confession. Yes, he is the king of the Jews, even though the people who heard that could misunderstand it. Matthew then continues. He mentions that the chief priests and the elders were making accusations against Jesus. He doesn't say what those were. He just says that they're making them. And when he did, they, they made those accusations. Jesus gave no answer. And that floored Pilate. He says in response, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But again, he he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep 
That before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's what Isaiah said what he was going to do. Matthew puts it here. He, he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge. And it says Pilate was greatly amazed. That's not what you do. Normally, that's not what we do, right? If we are accused, our natural response is to defend ourselves. Especially if we're falsely accused. If we're reviled, we revile in return. When we suffer, we threaten. And Peter says that's not what Jesus did. He didn't do what we naturally do. Because he was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I mean, there was no possibility for justice in this court. Jesus was entrusting himself to his father. The one who is the standard of justice, the one who is righteousness itself, he trusted his father and he stood firm and he gave his good confession. He said the truth about himself. So that's how Jesus responded in his trial. Now we're going to look at the main section of this trial, verses 15 through 26. And what we're going to see here are two responses. They're kind of woven together. We're going to see the response of the people of Israel and the response of Pilate. So Israel rejects the righteous Christ. And Pilate, he condemns the innocent and he pardons the guilty. So at this point, Pilate's on to them. He, he understands what's going on here. Verse 18 tells us that why he's going to do what he's about ready to do. He could see that these leaders had brought Jesus here because they were envious, because they envied his popularity. Now, John goes on to say that they were scared of his popularity because they also were afraid that, that Jesus was going to cause the Romans to take away their place and their, their authority and their situation. But Pilate doesn't necessarily know all that they're, they're thinking. He can tell that they are concerned about his popularity, that they don't like that fact, the fact that Jesus is so popular. And so... They, Pilate, he does not want to, to be used. He can tell that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to use him to get rid of Jesus. So then verses 15 and 16, they give us some background. They tell us about this custom that happened around the Passover where the governor would release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And then it mentions immediately this notorious prisoner named Barabbas. The implication seems to be, this is who the people wanted. This is who they wanted him to release. Before all this thing that came up with Jesus, that's who they would want to release. So who's Barabbas? Well, his name just means the son of Abba, or the son of a father. It's kind of a, a very general name. D.A. Carson suggested that he could be the son of a famous rabbi. Rabbis would have been called father. So he could have been the son of a famous rabbi. But that's a name, Barabbas, Bar-Abbas, is a name that, it's not a first name. We have Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Abbas, it sounds like, is a second name. So what's his first name? There are uh, ancient copies of Matthew that show that in this passage, in verse 16 and verse 17, it said, Jesus... Bar Abbas. Now, there are even other ancient copies that have notes in them on the side saying that other ancient copies have Jesus in them. And there was a guy named Origen living in the third century who explains that there were these copies that said that Bar Abbas's first name is Jesus, 
but that that was inappropriate. That Jesus should not be the name given to a sinner, even though it was actually a very common name at the time. And so I think in all likelihood, I'm inclined to think that originally the text here read Jesus bar Abbas. So you have two Jesuses here in this passage. It also says that he is a no- notorious prisoner. John refers to him as a lace taste. That's a translated robber often, but it, it really isn't. It, it, that's the translation based on tradition. The fact that we now say that Jesus was crucified between two thieves or two robbers. That's, that's ingrained in us to the point that translators are scared to death to change it. But all the scholars agree that's, that's probably not the best translation for that. So... This is a term that Josephus, who lived at the time, he used for zealots who were trying to overthrow the Roman government. And Matthew and, or sorry, Mark and Luke, they both say what Barabbas had actually done. This Jesus Barabbas was involved in an insurrection, and he had murdered someone. So you have this lastes this insurrectionist, and it actually goes on to say that the two next to Jesus are the same on the cross, two crosses. So D.A. Carson pointed out that they already had three crosses prepared. Three crosses. They didn't have to scramble to try to get a third ready for Jesus. That, that central cross there was Barabbas's, And he was in all likelihood involved with these other two men in an insurrection. He had done something That was an attempt to start to throw off Rome's power. Now, Rome, the one thing they wanted to avoid was their subjects rebelling against them. So what do you do when people start to rebel? You show them in no uncertain way that this is the worst thing you can do. That's what crucifixion was. Crucifixion was a way to humiliate, a way to bring horror at the thought of doing anything like insurrection. It was a public humiliation. It was a public torture that usually was in a a public place along a highway so that people would have to pass and see this is what you get if you mess with Rome. So these three men had been involved in this and it would turn out that the, the one person that they wanted to release, they wanted Pilate to release at this time, was the most famous one of the three. He's referred to as notorious here. You could translate that more neutrally as just well-known. He's a freedom fighter. And you can imagine people who do not like the fact that Rome's in charge are going to love a freedom fighter. At the same time, Jesus had demonstrated a great deal of popularity. When he came to the city, they were shouting. They, they, They had this great celebration for him. So, Consider how I'd call Pilate a very savvy leader at this point. He sees a problem. These Jewish leaders are trying to use him as a hitman. And he's not interested in that. So this crowd that is gathered for the purposes, according to Mark, for the purposes of this, this prisoner release, he can, he's going to now use them against these Jewish leaders who have brought Jesus to be executed. I mean, he's figuring, okay, Jesus Barabbas, he's popular, but he can't be as popular as Jesus, who is called Christ. So he offers these two Jesus to the people, 
and ask the crowd to choose. Now, while this is going on, verse 19 says, he's interrupted. It says he was sitting on the bema, the judgment seat. That's the official spot that a judge sat down when there's an official trial. And he's going to have to rule on it. So he's sitting there. The trial is in progress. And his wife sends a message to him. She tells him, I have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Roman officials started their business really early in the morning. So she's probably waking up during this trial. She's having this nightmare during these proceedings. And she gets a message to her husband as quickly as she can. Now, Matthew doesn't say this, is, this was a message from God. I mean, in the second chapter of Matthew, God does speak to these pagan magi through dreams. But Matthew is including it here as part of his evidence that Jesus is innocent. Greeks and Romans, they believe just like the Egyptians and the Babylonians that the gods could speak to you through dreams. So this is communicating something to Pilate. Pilate is convinced Jesus is innocent. This is all about these Jewish leaders trying to get rid of him. So he offers to free Jesus. He offers the crowd. He thinks the crowd's going to be on his side. Offers them Jesus. Instead of this other Jesus Barabbas that they'd come for. But again, Israel's leaders, they have these other plans. Now, Matthew keeps referring to the leaders as the chief priests and the elders. He could have done it a number of different ways. But he specifically includes priests and elders. Because all the way back in the first five books of Moses, God had ordained, he had established these two offices as leaders within the people. Priests and elders. It goes, it stretches back to the very beginning. So these are the official leaders of Israel. And they are persuading the crowd to ask for Barabbas, not Jesus, and to destroy Jesus, which is exactly what they wanted to do since chapter 12. So you can understand, Pilate gives this offer, and there's a murmur in the crowd. And there's people that are talking. He asks which Jesus they want. They'd gathered that morning for one Jesus. But he, is, he believes that he's now convinced them to take the other Jesus. So, this group is, they, they were the same group that were shouting Hosanna to the son of David when he came earlier that week. But now they're looking at Jesus. He's captured. And the, the leaders are going around saying, he's a blasphemer. And they already liked Barabbas. So that's who they asked for. Now, Pilate is a little stunned that his plan didn't work. He still doesn't want to be this lackey for the, these Jewish leaders. And so he, he engages the Christ. He says, what then shall I do with Jesus who's called to Christ? It's kind of a last-ditch effort to get them to change their mind. And they respond, let him be crucified. I mean, how in the world does a group of people who were shouting Hosanna to this man suddenly bring him to Pilate and say, crucify him? I mean, you could tell. Pilate's floored by this. He does not expect it. He says, why? What evil has he done? They don't answer the question. Verse 23 says, they just shouted all the more. Let him be crucified. Understand that's a command. We don't have third person commands. So we have trouble translating them. Best way I think you can get at a third person command is to say, he must be crucified. The other gospel writers, they just translate it as crucify him. They're telling Pilate what to do with him. They're saying, crucify him. Some of these same people, they had 
They had literally shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now they're shouting louder and louder. Crucify him. They don't have any answer for Pilate. They can't tell him an evil that he's done. They just don't want this Jesus. They want the popular Jesus. They want the one who's trying to give them their best life now. They, don't, they want the Jesus who's going to fight for their material good now. So they're going to let this other Jesus be the devil to them. Someone that they can watch be tortured to death. Because they'd rather build their own beautiful city than submit to God and to his king. So in verses 24 through 26... You have the final response for these two groups, Pilate and for the people of Israel. Pilate sees that things are getting out of hand. They're trying to start to riot. This is not a hill he wants to die on. He doesn't care about this that much. He didn't need to involve the soldiers to try to stop a riot that wouldn't stop if he released Jesus. It was just going to create more problems for himself. So he gives in to them. But in doing that, he, he still tries to show that he doesn't want to be associated with this. So verse 24 says, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. It's not clear where Pilate got this idea. He could have got it from observing Jewish people when they would do this kind of a process. They would wash their hands uh, to declare their innocence with bloodshed. They got that from the law, Deuteronomy 21.6. Could have been something that was familiar to the Romans. We're, we're familiar with the idea of washing your hands of something. You're saying, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And, and Pilate explains what he's saying. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. This is your thing. It's not mine. Notice, notice who responds. Look at verse 25. Up to this point, Matthew has consistently referred to them as the crowd. But he changes his description. Verse 25 says, and all the people answered. Blood be on us and on our children. In the Old Testament, those words, all the people, they're found at very decisive points where the, the, the people of God are doing something. In fact, uh, one commentator pointed out that there's only three places where you see all the people answered. Two of them are found in Exodus. Two of them are found when God is making his covenant with his people. Exodus 19.8 says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You remember Moses goes up to the mountain, receives the instruction. He comes back in. He tells them all the rules. It says in, in Exodus 23 or 24, 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all his rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So it's quite appropriate for Matthew to use these words describing this, this crowd as the people of Israel acting in a united way in the same way that they acted at the beginning when they first were brought into this covenant, this old covenant, as it will be known. Jesus right now is inaugurating the new covenant. That's what he's doing by his sacrifice. 
He's establishing the new covenant. And by doing that, he is making the old covenant obsolete. There's two ways that God is going to demonstrate that to the people. During the crucifixion on the 51st verse of this chapter, he is going to tear the curtain in half from top to bottom in the curtain. He's saying, the temple's done. Then in 70 AD, he is going to fulfill Jesus' prophecy in chapter 24 and destroy the temple, level it. Jesus had prophesied, he told the people in chapter 23 that God's punishment for all the innocent blood that his people, his own people, had shed through all the prophets, through all that time, it was going to come to its full measure in their rejection of him. It was going to reach its full point when they rejected their Messiah. And then Jesus says that he would leave their house, their temple, desolate. So what we have here is the people of God accepting responsibility for this execution. So for, for blood to be on someone's head is a way to describe your responsibility for their death. And by including their children, what they're doing is they're, this is a way to describe the entire family. They're saying that we're doing this in solidarity. So they're really saying that nationally, we are rejecting this Messiah. They're accepting the responsibility for Jesus' death. All the Jewish people that had gathered from all the different parts of the land, they're gathered there for the feast. The leadership, the officially ordained leaders of God's people, they're there. They are officially taking responsibility for this execution. That's not a racial thing. This is not something that should encourage anti-Semitism. Again, this is not about ethnicity. What this is, is the acknowledgement of God's people that they are officially rejecting their Messiah. And it's official. This is an official. That's why Matthew describes it this way. Jesus is now officially the stone that the builders rejected. So no, no punishment should happen. Christians should not be a part of any attempts to punish the people. God deals with that. The punishment comes when he destroys their temple. And when he severs ties with them under the old covenant. The old covenant is no longer a means of access to God. So you cannot access the Father by way of Judaism. There's one way to the Father. It's through the Son. But there's hope still. Jesus has hope for his people, even in this, even in this book. <clears throat> there's hope at the last verse of chapter 23 where he told his people, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The implication is that they're going to say that one day. One day, the nation was going to turn to Christ. And as Paul puts it, they're going to be grafted back into the people of God, joining us who have trusted in Christ. But for now, this nation, and again, we'd add that individual Jewish people are accepting Christ still, but as a nation, they're doing what they've done to the prophets. They're shedding righteous blood. Israel here is rejecting their righteous Christ, their righteous Messiah. 
But Pilate's response isn't good either. He's trying to claim innocence. He's trying to say he doesn't want to have anything to do with this. But ultimately, he is the one who condemns the innocent, and he's the one who pardons the guilty. Verse 26 reads, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. No matter how much pressure was put on him, Pilate is responsible for his actions. He's in charge. And he showed Jesus no mercy. He didn't care about Jesus. He has him scourged. He has him whipped with this whip that would have had sharp pieces on the end of it. Bone and metal that was used to just rip a person's back to shreds. Exposing internal organs. The purpose of that, it was done officially before crucifixion. It was done specifically so that the person who was crucified wouldn't have any way of surviving crucifixion. They were brought to the point of death in a, in a way through that scourging. In fact, if there, was no, if there was no crucifixion, they could even kill a person that way. So Pilate is not innocent in what he's done. He's the one who delivers Jesus to be crucified. Israel rejects their Messiah. Pilate condemns him to death. The last response we see is that of the soldiers who follow Pilate's lead. The soldiers mock the king of the Jews. In verses 27 through 31. Now this last section is a pattern. It has a pattern to it. It's kind of hard to picture times, but you'll notice some things repeated. Verse 27 has features in it that are repeated in the second part of verse 31. Beginning in the end. Then you have verse 28 that matches the first part of verse 31. Then you have the first part of verse 29 that matches verse 30. And so at the center of this, the center of this is the second half of verse 29, which says, and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. So the way that Matthew's organized this, that's the the key point he wants us to see. That even though they're doing this sardonically, they're, they're telling the truth. They may not mean it, but they are telling the truth about Jesus. So a lot of freedoms evidently given to these soldiers when it comes to those who are marked for execution. So these are, understand, these are war hardened men. They have faced the horrors of hand-to-hand combat. And they're now deadened to violence. To the point that they find sadistic pleasure in torturing someone. So, military leaders are, are basically trying to make these soldiers happy by letting them do whatever they want with a condemned man. So what they do is they take Jesus into the praetorium, the the governor's headquarters, out of everybody else's sight, so the people in the area couldn't see what they were going to do. And they played a game with him. This was like a cat toying with a mouse before devouring it, just torturing it. This is what they're doing. Tormenting these victims. And the game of choice in this case is a mock coronation. I mean, they figured, oh, Jesus, he says he's a king. We'll treat him like a king. They make fun of him. And just bear in mind, this says the whole battalion could have been up to 600 men. It was at least a large group of men against one badly beaten man. 
Jesus is at the center of this. So they changed his clothes. They put on a scarlet robe. They'd probably gotten it from a fallen soldier. It was the color of a cloak that would be used for their, their officers. And it was close enough to purple that for them it functioned like a royal robe. And then they, they kind of wove together these thorny branches into a makeshift crown. And they, then they took that thorny crown and they shoved it down on his head. And then they took a reed. Now, it's not a flimsy reed like you might be imagining. This would have been substantial, something heavy even. And they put it in his right hand like a scepter. And then they knelt down just as they would for Caesar. And probably even in Latin, they say to him, Ave, king of the Jews, just like they would hail Caesar. And then they start spitting on him. They take the reed out of his hand and they start repeatedly beating him with it. This is a man who's already endured something that could have brought about a person's death. And when they had finished this sick game, they dressed him back up and took him outside. No one would have known exactly what he had faced outside of those that understood the way that Rome worked. So that's what That's the trial. Jesus stands firm, tells the truth. His own people reject him, even though he's their righteous king. Pilate condemns him, even though he's innocent. The soldiers mock him sadistically, even though he is what they're saying. Now, why should that not surprise us? The glaring flaw of God's spell isn't first and foremost the fact that they left out the resurrection. The flaw is that they imagine that humans in our separation from God are essentially good. And and so when we imagine that of ourselves, we kind of have trouble with, with people responding this way to Jesus. But just think about the truth of this situation. If Jesus really is the king... The king of the world who comes to judge everyone who refuses to submit to God. Everyone who, who demands their own personal autonomy. If Jesus is the future judge who will force everyone to bend their knee to him. If Jesus is the king who comes to put a stop to our independent lifestyles. Where we do what we think is best for ourselves. If that's who Jesus is. What would we do if we could get our hands on him? So what will you do with Jesus? Whose side are you on in the story? Don't imagine that you're on Jesus' side if you call him a good teacher. So understand, all that really is is a way to silence Jesus. I mean, you can ignore a teacher. I know our teachers don't like to know that, but you can ignore a teacher. You can take what you like from him and leave what you don't like. You can't do that to a king. You can't do that to the son of God. So calling him a good teacher is really just a way to ignore him. To ignore his authority. That's not an option in the end. So consider Jesus' response to this. I mean, if, if Jesus is telling the truth... If he is raised, 
if he's going to be raised, if he's going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, if from there he's going to come to judge the living and the dead, if that's true, why, why let this go on? Why let this charade of a trial go on? Why not stop these sadistic soldiers from what they're doing? Why endure it if he's the son of God in human flesh? Jesus stood firm. He, he gave his good confession and just took what they do, did, endured it because it was necessary. He's just saying about the destined day. See the destined day arise. Jesus' followers in Acts 4, they prayed this prayer. They said, truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had planned for this to happen. It wasn't just unfortunate it wasn't just things getting out of hand jesus had said this must happen he said it multiple times to his his followers the last time was in chapter 20 he said see we're going up to jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified exactly what happened in this chapter and he will be raised on the third day but again, why? Why does that have to happen? Well, it's because of what he said just a few verses after that. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life, to take the punishment, to pay for the sins of everyone who will trust in him. So that's why he endured this. He endured it for those who believe in him. So that's a response we should have from this. We should believe in him, this loving Lord who came to rescue us from our rebellion. We can't build the beautiful city. Because we're not really righteous. We need to trust in his rescue. We need to trust in the forgiveness that comes through him. The forgiveness of our rebellion, our insurrection. You know, we are, like Barabbas, we're all insurrectionists. Only we've rebelled against the greatest emperor ever, God himself. So we're facing this punishment. We're just like Barabbas. We're facing a punishment. Do you believe that Jesus took your place on the cross just like he took Barabbas's place? Do you believe that Jesus died so that you could go free. Not free to just continue in your rebellion, but to bring you to God so you could have life with Him. Join the life that you were intended to have. So the call of this story is to turn from your rebellion. To bend your knee to Jesus now. As your king. As your savior. Because now is the time for that. Not the end. When you face him. For those who are submitting to Jesus. Don't be ashamed to give your good, good confession to. Hold fast to your confession.
Jesus said that those who follow him, we must be willing to endure what he faced. Rejection, mocking, abuse. And not only that, as we're following him, we should continue to struggle against sin, to struggle against our rebellion. That's what Jesus died to rescue us from. So as you follow Jesus, we look to him. It's like the writer to the Hebrews puts it when he tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Matthew's given us this picture of the, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we look to him. We need to meditate on what Jesus has done for us. Meditate on that so that we will follow him. Endure with him. Despise the shame of mocking, of rejection. And keep struggling against sin. Keep turning from our rebellion. This is the true Jesus. This is who Jesus really is. He's not here to give you your best life now. He's not here to live for your material gain right now. He's not here so you can just be a a good person that tries to make the world that you want. This is the true Jesus, the one who is the king, but who came to give his life as a payment to rescue us from the power of sin, from the power of this sin that, that is why we're rebelling. So in the power of his salvation, we look to him, we keep going. When you don't have your dreams fulfilled, in this life, keep going. When people ridicule you, when they mock you, when they make fun of you for what you believe, you keep following Jesus. When you're rejected by your peers, when you're rejected by your, your fellow employees, when you're rejected by your society, you keep following Jesus. There was a joy that was set before Jesus, and by faith, that's our joy. So we keep following him. We rejoice in the Lord, and we keep following him. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we want to thank you. We acknowledge that we, we did not deserve this sacrifice that you gave. We didn't deserve any of the pain that you experienced. We didn't deserve for you to, to take our place on the cross. This is just sheer, undeserved kindness. Amazing love. That you would take our place. And we want to thank you for that. And we want to acknowledge the way that we continue to fall short of one who is committed to following you. We so often fail. Put other things first, ahead of you.
we, we want to confess that. And we want to ask that your spirit would enable us. The Holy Spirit would be at work in us to make us like you. To keep us from what we would want to do for ourselves. That we would live completely for you. Sacrificially for you. Help us to see that through even this, this horrible scene. The way that we should follow you. Anyone who, who does not believe in you, Jesus, we, we pray that you would demonstrate this truth that you confidently, forthrightly, faithfully told Pilate that you are the king. That you would cause that to be heard. The Holy Spirit would cause anyone here who does not believe to pay attention so that they would truly turn from their rebellion trust in you